Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. Hey, welcome to the Trial and Medical Error podcast with your hosts, Brendan Lupitan and uh, Greg Uniton. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm good, Brendan. How are you? Good. I'm excited to talk. Focus groups, one of our longstanding foundational tools that we use to uh, help our clients' cases today. So we're going to do two episodes on focus groups, at least at this point. So give me a little summary, Greg, of what we're going to cover today between episode one, episode two on uh, virtual focus groups. Well, I'm, I'm really eager to pick your brain on this, Brendan, because I know that focus groups are sort of an evolving entity or, or activity. So getting the latest from you is really important for me because that helps us run these more efficiently and, and get the best feedback from participants. So what we're going to talk about today are basically the nuts and bolts of setting up a focus group and conducting a focus group. And then, you know, in our next part, we'll go into some more details about strategies and different types of focus groups. Yes. And one of the things that I want to talk about in episode two so stay tuned, is some of the hidden benefits that are not overtly apparent when you first start doing focus groups. But in this episode, okay, my overarching mission here is for anybody who's listening that has never done a focus group to realize that anybody can do it. That literally, you know, if a dodo bean like me could figure out how to do these focus groups, then anybody can do it. And I just want to lower the barrier of entry, of concern, of, of whatever's holding people back from doing focus groups because they're great. They have, I feel, really transformed my abilities as a trial lawyer when I first started doing them a long, long time ago. Okay. So, not to blather on anymore with yelling at people to do focus groups, but I want to talk about basic DIY, do-it-yourself virtual focus groups. And the advent of Zoom or Teams or whatever your virtual platform of preference is, has made it so much easier to do focus groups. And there's really no excuse anymore not to do them. So number one, Let's start at the beginning, Greg. Oh well, yeah, my my first question. No, that's fine. That's no, fine. No, I'm just I'm just kidding. No, hit me with the first question, and then we'll we'll pivot into it. Okay. So, when during the life of a personal injury or medical malpractice case do you do focus groups? Anytime you can, whenever you think to do it. And I'll give you a perfect example. We're doing one this afternoon. And there's a couple different cases that I'm going to be discussing with the participants. And uh, we've got uh, four people that are signed up. They're going to get on Zoom right around 2 o'clock today, do a two-hour project. And we're going to cover two cases. So in case one, we'll be talking about a case that's very, very early in litigation. Haven't uh, taken any depositions yet, got some initial discovery. And... I've got an important deposition coming up of the target defendant. And I want to understand what you're always talking about, Greg, which I totally agree with, which is, you know, what's the juror proof people are wondering about, have questions about, you know, what's going to move the needle with an actual jury rather than, you know, just our basic, you know, medical proof and establishing the, the elements of the case. So we're going to talk about that one. Then we're going to, I'm going to also talk about another case that's way down in the life cycle, getting much closer to trial. And I've got pretty much all the information where I can present kind of a, an overview of what the case is all about. Now that I kind of know what the defenses are, I know how the testimony and the expert reports have come out and get insight on and greater clarification on how to present this to a jury at an actual trial if that happens. But to your question, you can do them, you should do them, you know, before you even file suit. I think a lot of times in MedMal in particular, you and I, we see a case, we figure it out, we figure out the liability, we can see the path, the causation. And so we're thinking to ourselves, great, you know, let's, let's let it rip and go forward. But then we run the case you know, sort of the theater of the case past a focus group panel. And we find out that there's some major 
you know, whether it's, you know, moral culpability or just ways people look at cases that does not resonate with them. And we realize that the case is not as wonderful as, as maybe the medicine might portray it to us as being. And so that makes us either dig further in. Is this something you want to talk to? Sometimes it's, you know, maybe people have a preconceived notion about our client. So we get the client in, talk to them, investigate whatever the issue is before we pull the trigger and make that decision to go forward. So you should really be thinking about implementing focus groups at all throughout the life cycle of cases. And I haven't, in my experience, done enough of the early focus groups, early meaning either before you take the case or before a deposition. And so, I, I mean, I would ask you, are, are there some takeaways that you have? And I know we'll talk about this later too, but like it, it, how has doing a focus group prior to a deposition helped you at a deposition? Well, it, it helps for a lot of different reasons. And you know, Greg, you're forcing my hand to talk about some of the hidden benefits in episode one that I wanted to talk about in episode two, but no, this is, this is good stuff. And it's, there's a real, there's a double benefit of preparing the focus groups and doing a focus group early. So how many times do we get a case and we, you and I have essentially a standard practice that we try not to meet with the client's before we've evaluated the records and decided that we have what we need from the bedrock piece of evidence, the medical records, that we can establish a case based on those records because, you know, how difficult med mal cases are, how expensive they are and so forth, we don't want to make errors in decision-making so far as taking cases on because of the sympathy that always develops and the empathy that we have with people that have been through a horrific experience but that very well may not have been caused by medical malpractice. And then we get into a really tough spot. We've made a connection with these people and it can lead you to make some bad decisions. So we try to figure the case out based off of the records and the general description that our nurse paralegal obtains from the potential client before we say, yeah, this is something we're going to move with. So, but the hidden benefit of doing the case early is, as I sort of alluded to a little bit ago, you present the basic facts of the case as you know it to a group of people that are non-medical professionals would be potentially just like the jurors that are going to sit on your jury. And they're inevitably going to have a different view of the case. They're going to bring different viewpoints. And they're also going to have issues that, that might arise regarding why did the patient or the patient's family do this or do that? And maybe there are some, you know, big issues that arise. Well, I think this person may have done this, and that would be a real problem for me. And now the case becomes focusing on them. So then we learn, okay, there's a big issue here. Is this something that if we go back and we talk with the client now and dig into that particular issue, we can either correct or we can clarify and, and feel good going forward with the case? Or did that focus group juror help identify a potential poison pill in the case or a real uh, landmine that we might have a hard time getting around, which then is going to impact whether we take on the case or not? So that's really helpful. But the other, the hidden benefit is every single time that I sit down and prepare to do a focus group, no matter how rudimentary the project, sometimes it's just you know, a very, very general issue. But just sitting down, putting pen to paper, really scrutinizing how I'm going to convey this information to this you know, prospective panel of people helps crystallize the case. And just in doing that, not even talking with the focus groupers, but just going through that process helps identify all sorts of potential problems or you know, theories that I hadn't fully flushed out before. I think we all walk around every day with ideas of things that are kind of percolating, bouncing around in our head, but they're not fully formed. And they're not fully formed until you get them out on paper, until you start articulating them, you start trying to teach whatever the issue is to other people. And then certain things, you know, hit you overhead that you, you really hadn't confronted or thought about before. So that's, that's kind of the dual benefit, I think, that we get and I get from doing focus groups early, even before we necessarily decide to take the case. And coming from the perspective of handling a lot of cases where I did not or we did not do focus groups early, whether before we take the case or before the depositions. I could tell you that I've reviewed feedback from focus groups close to the time of trial, right? And got some hidden gem that I never thought about in terms of how certain participants looked at the evidence or looked at the conduct 
of the defendants. And then I go back hoping that the deposition of the of the target defendant or one of the defendants has something, you know, that I could nail them down with that coincides and jives with what the focus group participants have just given me. And uh, half the time it's not there, right? Because we, we didn't think about it until the focus group participant gave it to us way too far down the road, you know, on the eve of trial. So I think that just that demonstrates the importance of doing these early depositions. I think we've all been in that position where whether it's from a focus group participant or just from talking to a friend, you realize something close to the time of trial, you've distilled it down, the case down to its core, and then you realize that you really didn't set the framework for that theory so well in your deposition because you're so focused on you know, what your expert told you during a 15-minute phone call before you filed the case, right? Yeah, it's the wisdom. It's the wisdom of the group. I think that we get into the case and say you are taking lead. You're digging into the case, the facts, the medical records, and so you're bringing your viewpoint, your experience, your knowledge base to the facts. Then you bring that and sort of your preconceived view of the case to you know whichever medical expert is the specialty that we need. Same thing. They bring their singular viewpoint with the information and the frame that you are bringing the information to them and so forth. And so you have this limited sort of, you know, two-person view of the case, which is very standard. That's pretty much what all medical malpractice, you know, lawyers and even personal injury lawyers, everybody does. But then you bring it to a group of people. And, you know, all of those people have different vantage points. They have different experiences of life, different, you know, just everything. And inevitably, somebody's going to see something different or think about something that you had not thought about or your expert had not thought about that sometimes helps, but sometimes hurts. And yeah, I mean, you're reminding me of, I mean, I think we drive sometimes defense counsel crazy because we're doing focus groups leading right up the trial and we're discovering new and better angles in which to present the case. And there are variations of, say, specifically what our medical expert may have said. And then they are kind of, wait a second, you know, this didn't seem to be what you were making the case about and everything like that. And I mean, it always works out well, but the point being that the more and earlier you do focus groups, and this is a lesson to us, it's a lesson to everybody out there, the sooner you're going to identify these issues and the better that you're going to be able to craft your discovery, your theory of the case, and, and the sooner you're going to have your eyes open to other possibilities or other angles in the case, especially at a time when, you know, like you said, you can better, you know, work and create the theory than after the fact trying to go back and hope it's there. Well, let's move into the next question. How do you get people for focus groups and how many people do you need for a focus group? These are great questions. And, and these are the kind of questions I think that scare people off from doing a focus group. And my first point out there, and there, this may be heresy to say something like this to some people out there who are very dogmatic in the way they approach focus groups, but I don't think there's any, any bad focus group. And I don't think that you should ever get preoccupied with whoever you're calling. I mean, even if it's a relative or a friend, I mean, people say, oh, well, they're going to, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. I don't think that's true, okay? I mean, th there may be some sycophantic type people out there that want to suck up to you and just tell you this, but they're actually doing you a disservice. And I think as long as you tell people, I want the brutal truth about how you feel about this, if the case sucks or it's great or there's questions you have, whatever. There's no dumb thoughts. Just blurt it out. Tell me. Tell me what you think. So that means that you can pretty much get anybody out there to assist you with the case. And over time, you start to figure out some people are, they may be leaning this way or that way or in your favor or against and so forth. But anyway, so you shouldn't be afraid of who you get. Just get somebody. Do the virtual focus group is better than never doing one, period. So that said, there's a variety of ways you can find interested people to participate. So first off, people love to do focus groups, okay? They... Everybody loves to share their opinion and give advice. Everybody likes to be asked about what they think about and, and to get paid for it about a real case. It's sort of like a, an interactive uh, TV drama about you know, medicine or, or whatever the issue is. And, and people, generally speaking, like it. And you can tell them that. You're going to like this. You're going to get paid. So you can put flyers up at coffee shops, at your you know, church or local place of worship. You can 
just tell people that you like to do focus groups. And if they're interested to shoot you an email, you can, the original was, you know, Craigslist, you know, so we'll go on Craigslist Pittsburgh and sure, you'll get uh, some professional focus groupers, you know, people that have done a million of them and it's their kind of, you know, side hustle to make some money. And look, sometimes you're going to do focus groups and you get some stinkers in there. People that dominate the conversation, people that don't say a word, which is, I would argue, just as bad as, as saying too much. Or, you know, people that just have totally bizarre, unhelpful thought processes or so forth. You, you will, from time to time, get those. But mostly, whether it's Craigslist, whether it's a Facebook post on your you know, do it on your personal Facebook page. Say, hey, it's, uh, you know, me, Sally Smith, and I'm looking to do a focus group. Uh, please private message me your email address if you're interested, and, and we'll reach out to you for the next project and so forth. So, and then you build your list, create a spreadsheet, get people's basic demographic and contact information, their age, their email address, their name, you know, and over time, you may learn a little bit about them and you can populate that. And I'll go back and I will, quote, reuse focus groupers all the time. Because here's what you're looking for. You are looking for people that are talkative, that are willing to share their opinions with others, but also listen to what other people have to say, and are not shy, are, and are thoughtful, are insightful, and are going to ask helpful questions about your case. That's who you want. And when you find those people, I highly encourage you to bring them back because they're a known quantity and they're going to provide you good value on just about any of your cases. Now, are they potentially going to skew some of your information? Sure, if you were looking at this as this highly scientific endeavor. But I don't think that people should be looking at DIY focus groups as, you know, this precise, perfect, scientific experiment that you're running for statistically significant information. That is not what these are about. These are small sample, what's called qualitative information gathering sessions. And the keys to DIY focus groups are helping you to think about your case in ways you hadn't thought about before, helping you identify problems with the case and, and figuring out are the problems that are being raised issues you can overcome or are they issues that you can never overcome? And also helping you identify uh, questions that people have, helping you figure out how to best articulate it and explain your case so that people can easily and quickly understand it, and and also identifying what are your best theories. You know, law people go to law school and they learn to issue spot, but trial lawyers, you know, you should not be trying a case as an issue spotter. It's not good to go to trial and have a hundred different things, you know, nitpicking issues that you're trying to prove. You should have, for the most part a pretty solid, strongest theory of the case with the best evidence to back it up. And focus groupers are going to help you identify that. So create the list, ask other people. I mean, if you really want to get serious about it on Facebook these days, you can do extremely cheap. Like I'm talking $10 will get your ad looking for, you know, virtual focus groupers to potentially thousands of local people. I mean, it costs nothing. I, I mean, Back in the day, uh, I had a couple of completely failed attempts at, you know, these, I'd reach out to these recruiting companies and I spent a couple thousand dollars one time to get all these people locally that could serve as potential focus groupers. And it was the biggest waste of money. And now there are just such easier, simpler ways to do it. Ask your friends about who they've used in their focus groups, share focus groupers and, and that kind of thing. So that's the, the bottom line about where to get them. So do you hide your identity as a lawyer? representing one of the parties to the case that's at issue? Do you, or do you just kind of come out with your identity and, you know, let people know, you know, your interest in the case? So I don't, so I give a spiel at the beginning of every focus group and I tell the people, this is a real case. Okay. This, this case has been filed in, you know, whatever county or whatever federal court, there are real people involved. You know, the names are probably changed to maintain some degree of confidentiality. And I tell them you're getting paid the purpose you're getting paid for is to share your opinion, okay? To tell us precisely what you think about this case. And I don't go out of my way to tell them if it's a case that's mine specifically. I mean, most of the time, the cases that we're reviewing are cases from our firm. You know, maybe I'm doing one that I'm specifically working on. Maybe I'm 
you know, doing a project that you or Maggie are working on. And sometimes, I mean, I, I do it not as much anymore, but I used to do a lot of focus groups for other people. You just did a focus group for a friend of ours recently. So I don't think that you need to go out of your way. On the other hand, I think, you know, probably a lot of the participants are going to assume that it's your case or it's a case you're closely affiliated with. But I don't think that you should worry about that so much because as long as you tell the people, like, to be brutally honest and to we're recording this so that we can gather information that's not going to be shared with anybody else and that their opinion is going to have a big impact on the case from purposes of, is it going to settle? Is it going to try? And if it tries, what is the outcome of the case? People take that seriously, and I do not think that they tell you what you want to hear just because they think maybe it's your case. I mean, I, I've had many, many people who knew that the case was my case tell me that the case sucked. So I don't think most people pull punches. Yeah, that, that's been my experience. That's been my experience as well. It has, because I think focus groupers recognize that they are there to help first and foremost. And and so they're, like you said, brutally honest when they need to be. They're kind too. and. They always have that sort of fallback that they don't know all the ins and outs of the case. They're just hearing it now for the first time. So, you know, they're, res- they're very respectful in, in how they share their opinions, even when they're trashing your case. But I, th- I think they recognize sometimes that you're looking to them for guidance so you can give yourself the best chance to win even what might be a difficult case. Yes. And I think what you just said a second ago, it's their job. They take it seriously. So you remind them of that. You're getting paid. You know, we're we're all going to have a good time here. We can laugh and joke and listen to each other, but you're getting paid to do a real job here. I also tell them as an aside that they're they're here as jury consultants. They are trial experts. And that way, at least in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, what they discuss, what they hear, et cetera, is confidential, does not need to be shared with the other side or anything like that, because these people, we're paying them for their expert commentary as uh, jury consultants. But It's just like regular jurors. I mean, I am always, always, as many trials as I tried, amazed how seriously people that have been pulled off the street to serve as jurors in a case, how seriously they take it. And I find that focus group participants uh, take focus groups that we put together uh, just as seriously. What about length of the focus group? I've heard people do half-day, full-day, two-day focus groups. Do you think that's there's a place for that? Yeah, I do. There are so many different ways to do focus groups that, you know, we typically, from a convenience perspective, we're usually doing two-hour focus groups. And we're usually not doing two hours all on one case, although sometimes we do. And there's a lot of takeaways from that. But, you know, we, we typically do portions of cases or a summary of the case in, in an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and you get a lot of great feedback. But could you do it? in a half day, over the course of the day? Absolutely. I mean, I, I've participated in projects like that before. And I mean, do you definitely get that much more beneficial information? I don't know. I'm not sold on that. But I think that you could if you did things like you showed full video testimony of one of the witnesses from the deposition and, and you, you know, almost like focus groups within a focus group and, and you got information on people's takeaway from that witness and then you you know, did an opening statement for plaintiff and defense and you got feedback from that particular thing. I mean, you could definitely do that and have them deliberate at the end, really having heard a lot more evidence. But, you know, that gets more into sort of mock trial. I sort of question how necessarily predictive that is. Certainly, you're going to get tons of helpful information and insights and so forth, but is it going to be predictive that you're going to win the case or not? I think there is no silver ball. Uh, Is that what it is? No silver ball? Is it crystal ball? No, crystal ball. Silver ball, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah <laughs> silver, silver bullet. <laughs> yeah, the silver ball. That's going to be my new uh, my new saying. But um, no, crystal ball. As far as predicting definitively what the outcome of the case is, I think probably these days the closest thing there is to that are these, you know, quantitative type projects that you and I have participated in, which are much more expensive, much more time consuming, very helpful in the right kind of case. But that's going to give you more statistically significant feedback on you know percentages of likelihood of liability and success and to some extent, you know, value of the case. But I don't think that people need to sit here and think they need to do a focus group that takes, you know, all day or even half a day. And, and, and again, so many hidden benefits from focus groups. I find that people get our cases in the half an hour that it takes me to, you know, summarize the case. And, and I try to always keep that in mind when I'm going to actually try the case that, if the focus groupers 
quote, get the case, they get the gist of the case in half an hour, why do I need so many extra witnesses to prove my case? I probably don't, you know, and I think mostly we just call too many witnesses. We overtry our cases out of fear, you know, out of worrying that, well, you know, maybe I'm missing something if I don't call this particular witness, but the jury gets it. And the focus groups help you figure out how to pare your case down and, and um, distill it down to its essentials. So we'll talk about the different types of focus groups and what you can, how you can present them differently to get to a specific goal in your case. But I, I want to just take what I consider the most generic or kind of most common type of focus group. And that is when you're essentially just reading a fact pattern and you're trying to get just off the top of the head feedback about the case from the focus group participants. How do you, what type of questions do you ask? Do you have to ask specific questions? Is it more general? What, how do you go about that? So I'm going to get to the answer to that in just a second. But for those people listening who are, you know, thinking about doing a virtual focus group, haven't done it before, let me just connect a couple steps from the last question and get us up to this question. So once you get that critical mass of people or, or just enough people that you can invite, okay, there is no specific number of people you need for a focus group. I would actually say less is better than more. Some people think you need 12, like a jury. You do not, and you don't want 12, I don't think, for purposes of what we're trying to get out of this because that becomes really prohibitive of you're paying all those people. Okay. And so you're going to get less value out of each of them if there's not enough time for each of them to really share their thoughts. And also you kind of find out that the responses become very redundant, like, oh, the same thing that that person said like four, you know, four answers ago. So I think the sweet spot for focus groups is somewhere between three and six participants. So it's just to interrupt you there in the quieter people, when they're among a larger group, will tend to be very quiet <laughs> rather than stretch themselves to speak up and share their opinions and thoughts. Without a doubt, the wallflowers have more of a place to hide when there's a lot of people in the project than when there's three people and they have to speak. And they also, I think, feel more comfortable speaking when there's, when there's less people than a large group, just kind of typical public speaking fear type stuff. So so you invite those people, you reach out, you say, hey, here's when we're thinking of doing it. You send an email. At this day, we've kind of automated it where I can tell Linda, my secretary, you know, I want you to try to I land four to five people for a project I'm doing on Wednesday. I'd like to do it at 2 p.m. for two hours, you know, and she knows everything else. She goes out, she emails them, gets feedback from a number of them. These people are good to go you know, always anticipate that, you know, one or two people won't show up. That's fine. Don't worry about it when they don't show up and, you know, confirm it. And then we're talking virtual here. So then once we get our agreed upon number of people, we uh, schedule it on Outlook via the Zoom app and uh, everybody gets invited to sign on to the Zoom app. We also ask them to send us their how to get paid preference with these days. It's really easy when people have Venmo or Zelle or something like that, and we can just pay them virtually as well. Some people are still kind of brick and mortar mentality and they want that check. So, so we'll mail the check to some people, but you get that information. And then literally it's as easy as, you know, just like we're doing right now, sitting at your desk and turning on the computer and clicking the Zoom link. And here you start seeing the people pop up on the screen and, and you're off and running. Whereas old days, Greg, we would, you know, tell them that it's in the building. We've got to get drinks all set up. I got to schlep the video camera down. I got to get the food set up, you know, bring cash down to hand out. I mean, it was such a, such a production to do in-person focus groups. Now, were there some things that I miss about that? Yeah, it was easier to do private questionnaires and things like that, which you know, there's still ways to do that in virtual focus groups, but I don't find myself doing it as much anymore. But generally speaking, just the ease with which you can conduct these focus groups, which is my theme for this episode, how easy it is. And you just have to do one to see how easy it is. It's, it's as easy as any other Zoom meeting that we set up on a regular day basis. And everybody does that. And, you know, with the pandemic, it has made everybody so much more comfortable with interacting, with setting up, with, with jumping on a Zoom meeting than they ever were beforehand. So 
It's just so easy, you know? So then you finally get there, you give the spiel that I just talked about to people. I remind them that, you know, their opinions matter. They are a little tiny sliver cross-section of our community and may have thoughts that overlap with what the actual jurors in the case may feel and share. And so everybody that comes in has something important to tell us and they're getting paid to do that. So we're counting on them to, you know, share with us their questions, their thoughts, even if they think they're silly, you know, it's a safe place, you know, try to, you know, be upbeat and a good, you know, in a good mood, you know, be goofy yourself a little bit to kind of break the ice. You don't want to run it like, you know, some overly sterile clinical scientist or something, which would make people not want to feel very comfortable and, and share their ideas. And you tell them that they're experts and they're going to get paid at the end. They're going to have a good time and, you know, ask them if they have any questions before you get ready and off you go, which takes us full circle. So, I mean, what, when you're getting all this feedback, how do you gather it so you could come back to it and remember it? Do you take notes? Do you have someone sit in? I was, I muted myself to cough, Greg, and then I was screwed up the mic. <laughs> God, you'd think at this point in time that we would be able to, uh, to get this. But no, I, your point is that, well, what was your point again, Greg? As you're getting all this feedback from the focus group participants, how do you gather that feedback jot it down, come back to it to remember it? I mean, how do you save it for future use? Well, I'll say what I do, which is number one, we record the focus groups and we tell them that, tell them ahead of time. Because I've had a couple people, hardly ever happens, but I had a couple people that complain, oh, you didn't say this was going to be recorded or something like that. I'm just like, give me a break. <laughs> but it's good to tell people ahead of time that it will be recorded. It's not shared with anybody. It's only for the parties in question to review, mostly to, you know, gather the insights better. But I, you know, I want to know what, what you do too. I mean, I, I record it and it's nice because you can record to the cloud on your uh, Zoom account and download it and, or, or send a link like we did to our friend the other day, uh, which makes it super simple to, to share the information that's gotten. You can go back and listen to it. And, you know, on the recording, it's nice. You can kind of click forward to where the conversation begins rather than re-listening to your old fact pattern or something. But I'm also taking notes. And a lot of the times, you know, either you, me, or Maggie, you know, you, whoever the, you know, the other person working on the case is, is typically listening. They're taking their own notes as well. And, um, you know, and, and there's usually I find some pretty key observations or questions or issues that come up that, you know, really smacking the face and you're writing those ones down and, and your, you know, your thoughts and so forth. But I try not to, you know, note take too much, not unlike say like voir dire and jury selection, like I'm really trying to listen and engage with these people. And, um, you know, it's that, uh, it's that stupid saying, you know, you're given two ears and one mouth. So you, you do twice as much listening than you do talking. And I think that's a good approach in focus groups. I mean, that you want to get the information that those people have. So you want to, you know, get that, you know, get the fact pattern out, ask concise questions, and then sit back and allow people to talk and simply ask, you know, probing follow-up questions to pull out more information. But what do you do? Well, I've always been told you have 10 fingers and one mouth and uh, two ears. So I, I use my 10 fingers to take notes as we go along to the, to the best of my ability, while also thinking about further questions and generating the discussion. But once that focus group is over and I have a chance to take a deep breath and just kind of think about what hit me the most from what feedback was received, I then start to create a memo. Or if you're around, I'll go in and I'll say, can you believe this? This is what we learned. I had not thought of this. Really, we'll tend to do both. But that's the period of time right after the focus group is over when that dopamine high is, is really running because... You've learned something you never thought about before, which generally is going to help you one way or the other. It's going to help you avoid a catastrophe trial, or it's going to really help you elevate the case and bring it to the next level. So it's an exciting time, and I jot everything down and until it's you know right in, in writing in a memo form. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll, that's what I do. Uh, to come full circle to the question you asked a moment ago, Greg, was the type of questions that you ask. And... I think one point, one thing I'll throw out there is a lot of times I find I've got to do a focus group to figure out how to do a better focus group. So sometimes I'll put a project together and, you know, admittedly, I won't totally have my arms around how best to present the information to a group of people. And so I just 
fail forward, I do it. You know, maybe it's not as uh, perfectly articulated of a fact pattern or a set of exhibits as I would have liked to convey to these people. But in doing it and in talking with them and finding out what their questions are about what I'm providing them, it actually helps me refine the fact pattern or the presentation for next time to even better present it to a focus group panel or a jury if need be. So so I think a lot of times you, you start that way. And, th- and, and I bring that up because a lot of the times you don't discover the best questions to ask until you do a focus group. And sometimes it's the questions that are posed by other focus groupers. But I think generally you do not want to ask leading questions. I mean, it's not, you're not trying to prove a point you know, God forbid you trying to win your focus group, which is the dumbest thing in the world to try to do. I mean, you're there to learn. You're there to find out the problems, the good stuff, the bad stuff. So, you know, I mean, you ask questions of a general nature. So, you know, having heard that fact pattern, what questions do you have? I mean, I'll literally start by asking them what questions do they have? And then, you know, there's certain topics that I'm always going to want to delve into. So what did you feel good or bad about X. And when people talk about that, you know, okay, Bill, well, well, I appreciate that, you know, but tell me more about that. Or what about this? Or, okay, well, let me play devil's advocate with the point that you just make, you know, and then always making sure that you are respectful to whoever provided a response and then pivoting. Okay, you know, Mary, Bill just said that. What's your feeling? What were you thinking before you heard what he had to say? And now how do you feel with what Bill said? Did that, you know, change your opinion? Does that uh, give you a different way of looking at it and why? And, you know, then when you get two different people, you can play them off of each other in a friendly, nice way. Okay, Marie, you know, why don't you try your best to convince Bill, you know, why, you know, your point is kind of more on point, that kind of thing. And you're just sort of facilitating a discussion. It should be you know, friendly and, you know, where everybody's listening and hearing out the other side and sharing, okay, I get that, but, and qualifiers and trying to nail stuff down. And you're also trying to find ways of identifying consensus threads, I think. So there might be, you know, three, four, you know, somewhat different responses to whatever the issue is. And then you can ask people. So the sense I'm getting back is, is that generally, you know, fit with everybody's feelings here? And then if you find, well, no, that really is not what I'm thinking, then you know, okay, that wasn't it. You know, but trying to identify those things, you know, bringing, you know, the, the overall feedback from people together in a unifying point to see if, if you phrase it a different way, if people agree with that or clarified and so forth. And, and just continuing to probe and follow up and tell me more, tell me more, or I don't quite understand, help me better understand that particular issue and so forth. Kind of taking a step back, I should have asked you about this earlier, but I struggle with creating a neutral fact pattern. If you're stealing from, you know, your pretrial narrative statement or from an expert report, it's generally generally going to be skewed in favor of your case and the the theories of negligence. How do you go about shifting that fulcrum so that it's an even neutral narrative report or fact pattern for the uh, participants? So I always tell myself that kind of prepare for pain in the sense that it's hurt, you know, it it hurts to really dig into and listen to what the other side has to say. But I think it was maybe Charlie Munger who has a, a quote along the lines of, you really aren't entitled to give your opinion on something until you fully understand and can, you know, equally or better explain the other side's, you know, viewpoint you know, kind of thing or criticizing, you know, their, their point of view until you fully understand the rationale and reason and the, the point of view from which they're coming from. And, you know, I say that because the fact pattern should start with, well, what does the defense say about all this? And digging into their expert reports and digging into and really thinking through why they are, they are thinking and saying and arguing the way that they are. Why are they doing that? And writing from that vantage point. You know, you're obviously, you know, trying to lay out a basic, you know, okay, this is a medical malpractice case. Sally is suing Bill for medical negligence. You know, Bill vehemently denies that both sides have medical experts in support of their contentions, you know, and here's the general fact pattern of the case. And so you, you try to give as neutral of a fact pattern as possible. And then you, I would say, 
you know, if anything, you're, you're leaning on making the case tougher against you, more defense leaning, if anything. And even in spite of that, even despite our best efforts, Greg, to, you know, create a neutral or even defense leaning, it's sometimes just the cognitive dissonance is so hard for us to confront. We still write bias fact patterns in favor of the plaintiff or leave something out or don't, you know, slant the defense arguments in, in the strongest light possible. And so, you know, if you have time, you should run your fact pattern by friends of yours, people without any skin in the game, people outside your firm, you know, other lawyer friends or so forth, and ask them, you know, what do you think about this? Is this too, is this too framed in my favor, you know, set up for me to win? Because you don't, you don't want that. But it's hard and it's incredibly important to try to put together the most neutral or, if anything, defense-leaning, I mean, we're, we're plaintiff lawyers, you know, fact pattern that you can. Right. And I think what you said about understanding the defenses is the first order of business when crafting your fact pattern. And in like you just mentioned, defense leaning probably won't hurt you. Right. Right. Because, I mean, you already have the primacy effect as the plaintiff, if you are doing your focus group on behalf of the plaintiff and you know, you're coming first, right. And you're, you're forming that initial oppression for people in a very tight time frame, right. We're usually presenting these fact patterns over the course of no more than an hour. So I find myself in some of these fact patterns trying to get the whole plaintiff's case out to the, you know, the detriment of substance on the defense side. And then I just, I just worry that the lopsided nature of the fact pattern, just talking more about the plaintiff's case in general, is, is going to skew people in the direction of the plaintiff and just affects the neutrality of the fact pattern. So yeah, you, if, if there's any way you could you just... Talk less about your case and more about the def- <laughs> the defense's case. That will probably be a good idea, if especially if what you're trying to do ultimately is evaluate the defenses in the case and, and how to respond to them from the plaintiff's side. Yeah, because, I mean, I think one of the questions you should always be asking yourself leading up to trial is how do we lose this case, you know, which may seem counterintuitive to think of the inverse, but if you don't think about the inverse and you just think our, how we're going to win, you, you miss out on a lot of self-inflicted wounds that you're likely to cause yourself if you don't look at it from the inverse. And, and so that's why you really want to understand, you know, which of the defense arguments are the best, most effective, what aspects of some of their arguments have nuances that, you know, maybe are not initially you know, evident to you until you hear the way they strike a juror or jurors. So, and the other point, Greg, is, and again, this comes into the the dual, you know, benefit of focus group preparation. You need to be paring the fact pattern down as concisely as possible because it doesn't do us a lot of good to, we're doing an hour focus group and we spent 40 minutes of it reading the facts to these people. I mean, that's a, that's just ridiculous. And it's a waste of time and it's a waste of the value of the people that or you're paying for their time. So you want to get everything concise. And, and sometimes, I, you know, we freak out, oh, but I left out this issue, I left out that issue. I, I would say simplicity, efficiency of getting the basic plaintiff case out and the basic defense case out and more of the defense case out, if anything, is, is what you should be striving for as far as your fact pattern and presentation of the evidence to a small focus group is concerned. One more little issue on this. Will you always include the opinions of the defense experts and the plaintiff's experts in your fact pattern? How much detail do you go into in that? Yeah, I do. I mean, you, I think it's important to catalog all of the specific arguments that the defense has made known that they may raise at trial and go through each of those with them. And we don't have enough time to, well, this was Charles Robinson from Johns Hopkins and blah, 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 like their whole CV. You know, you just say, world-class expert hired by the defense in oncology will testify as follows. And you hit point, 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 point. And to the extent that some of them kind of connect together, explain that and so forth, and then go through with that, you know, go through the focus groupers. Like, what do you think about this argument? What do you think about this argument? And then as they do it, then you can counter with, well, the, you know, the plaintiff's expert's going to say X. What do you think about that? Which makes more sense to you, that sort of thing. And kind of tug on all those threads to make sure you understand them, figure out which ones are most hurtful, and explore ways that those defenses can or could be neutralized, and you know, which is going to help you hopefully 
you know, inoculate them in opening and, and uh, be able to refute them without making your whole case about defeating the defense arguments uh, through the course of the trial. Yeah, and I, and I think it can't be emphasized enough that if you're doing the type of focus group which involves saying uh, uh, speaking out a fact pattern, reading a fact pattern, which, by the way, is pretty much standard. You need to read that fact pattern in a very neutral voice, tone of voice. But if you're doing it that way, it's important to layer the, the facts and the fact pattern in a way that you're getting feedback from the participants at different stages. So first you just, you just bring the facts without talking about the experts' positions and opinions on the facts. And you've you get the top of the head uh, feedback from the participants before hearing those expert opinions. Then you layer in the plaintiff's expert opinions. You get more feedback. And then you see how things change when the defense expert opinions are introduced. And inevitably, there will be sometimes a, a big shift among some participants in how they look at the case when they hear a reasonable or rational defense expert argument. Correct. And I mean, you have to then catalog all those and and write them out, whether it's, you know, you do it right after the, the project's done with, some, you know, a brain dump or you go back and, you know, just listen to the project again and take notes uh, while you have an opportunity to listen because you're not moderating any further and start to connect the dots. But it's, it's critical that you go back and then think about what were the key issues that came up? What were the key responses from people? You know, was there an obvious way to refute or for a strong defense argument? Are there ways to further bolster plaintiff arguments and so forth? And, you know, you just kind of then, you know, that kind of gets incorporated in the way that you're going to present the case. And it also factors into the way you may identify a, a poison pill issue in the case that, you know, is going to impact settlement potentially, that there's money on the table and you now know that there is the one defense argument that is incredibly formidable, going to be very difficult to overcome, and maybe the defense doesn't realize how strong of an argument it is, and so you can you know, counsel your client better and make a better decision regarding settlement, or vice versa. Defense is really dug in on an issue, but you know, their ace in the whole argument is really not what it's cracked up to be by them, and, and you've got a better chance at trial than the crummy offer that, that they're providing to your client so, so you can feel more comfortable going to trial. And, you know, then I think ultimately, you know, you think about how to take all these key issues you take. And a lot of times the focus group's going to tell you, I got to do another focus group, okay? I learned some key issues here that I hadn't thought about. And so I need to take what I learned and then do a more focused sort of approach, you know, with another project and then figure out ways to incorporate it and you know, really sharpen the the sword that we're we're bringing in, and and uh, I don't know what the counter statement is for the shield part, but build a stronger shield in preparation for trial from all the information that you gather from these focus groups. And you know, we're we're getting I think to the tail end of of this because a lot of what we're talking now I think is going to dovetail in ways and different options you have for presenting focus groups that can be really effective that we'll talk about in the next episode. But I think. You know, the, the big takeaway is that you need to incorporate this information into your trial strategy and think about key issues that you raise and which witnesses or which exhibits are going to, you know, make sure you check off all the key issues that you've learned through focus groups. And the big thing is this doesn't cost that much money. It doesn't. You get a ton of value out of it. We pay focus groupers, you know, usually 50 bucks for two hours of their time. You know, if you're doing three to four people at a time per project, it's really not very much money at all when you think about, you know, A, how much money we spend on, you know, trial tech and the, the cost of medical experts and so forth. So it's really invaluable. And, um, you know, I think you're, you're doing your, your case, yourself, your clients a bit of a disservice by not doing focus groups on cases that of, of any significance whatsoever. And they're so cheap, you can do them on just about any kind of case. So people really should, they're easy to do, they're fun to do, you're always going to get value out of them. Let me ask you one, one more big picture question about case selection, because we always need to keep case selection in mind. And you talked about doing early focus groups before taking a case. If you had a somewhat borderline case in terms of strength of the liability, but the, the focus group that you did before accepting the case and filing it was very bullish for reasons that were related to liability, but maybe were more specific to they just really liked the plaintiff or 
Uh, you know, they j just their life experiences dictate that these big overarching rules of how we conduct ourselves in society play in your client's flavor. Would you take a case based on the strength of the feedback from the focus group, even if like, let's say for instance, the experts are going to be clashing horns and, and it may not be so clear at the end of the day whose experts are right? I think it's going to be, it's going to you know, if there was a tipping point on whether or not on a borderline case you were going to take it or not, and you're getting, you know, strong feedback that, you know, separate and apart from the hotly contested liability issues in the case or causation, whatever it is, that you, your client, has the moral high ground, you know, that resonates with people, then we're going to be more inclined to take that. I think it's just another factor. Is it just an automatic we're going to take it? No. I mean, we're still going to look at other aspects of it, you know, the amount of time, their bandwidth, a variety of other issues. But if you're on the fence and, and you get some really positive feedback that, you know, the theater of the case weighs in your favor, then that's definitely going to, you know, be a significant additional piece of evidence that you're going to look at as to why we should, we should move on this case and go forward or not, I think. Maybe it'll push the needle a little bit, huh? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So uh, th I think that's a great place to to end this initial podcast, this episode of uh, trial and medical error on sort of the introduction to why people need to be doing these DIY virtual focus groups. They're easy, they're they're economical, they're an efficient way to you know work up your case. And I think that people, it's low-hanging fruit. And it's also a good reminder to us, you know, that why we do them and, and that we should honestly be doing them even more than we do. And lately, you know, we've been doing, you know, one or two a week and it ebbs and flows. But there's, there's just such a, there's just so much value that you get out of them um, for a lot of different obvious and some not so obvious reasons. So I hope anybody that's uh, listening that's been on the fence about doing, um, you know, focus groups via Zoom or whatever their platform of choice is, that this pushes you in the direction to give it a shot. I think because once you do one of them, you'll see how easy it is, how fun it was, how much you got out of it, and you want to do more, and you'll better help yourself and your clients. All right. Till next time. It was good chatting with you, Brendan. Likewise, Greg. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal and catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.